leaders. We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Change. Liberation is a praxis of action, team flexion upon the world. Welcome to the pedagogy of the obsessed. Welcome listeners, there were so many truth bombs in Jim's conversation with Nancy Gutierrez in episode 26, What Does the Work Require of You?, that we are sharing a part two this week. In this episode, Jim and Nancy get real about equity. In the last episode, Nancy shared how she grounds her work in her community and her ancestors. To give you a glimpse into that part of her identity, we will start today's episode with a story about Nancy's greatest advocate, her grandmother. In 2012, my grandmother decides to take six buses from the border of Texas and Mexico in a place called McAllen that many people know. she gets on the Greyhound bus and heads on to Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. to come mm-hmm. see her baby, which is me. That's right. Uh, obviously, I'm not as much of a baby anymore, but, you know, she has, like, almost 40 <laughs> grandkids. And so, Whoa. you know, she, she hops on a bus, um, of course, gives me no warning, doesn't tell me. And she, um, she spends three days on buses uh, mm-hmm. and with no phone and speaking, um, you know, uh, very little English. I wasn't sure how I was going to find her and I wasn't sure how she was going to find me. And so the, the, the funny part of the story is that, you know, I'm waiting for a call. I'm trying to figure out, you know, like how I'm going to find her, where, you know, I'm, I'm locating all the places where the Greyhound might drop her off. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I miss, I miss her call by seconds. Uh-huh. And all I hear in the other line is, Miha. Aquí estoy McDonald's. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she had, you know, she had arrived and she was waiting at a McDonald's somewhere in Boston. So my friends and I sit on a search and working at all the McDonald's across the city. And we find her at the Boston McDonald's at South Station. Oh, wow. uh, and um, I get there. She's sitting there. She had used a very nice man's phone. Uh-huh. And she's there with three big bags. And it had you know, homemade enchiladas, homemade queso, homemade salsa that she had brought mm, 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 mm. <laughs> all the way from across the country to, wow. to me. She brought me yeah. home. Yeah. She brought me home. Awesome. And, and there's something so deep. And I think, in, you know, in many ways, um, you know, our ancestors are always here with us. They are the ones that created the space for us, that push us to, you know, to be our very best. So we're always watching out for us. And I don't take that for granted. I don't take, you know, the fact that I'm at many tables today because of her, mm-hmm. because of sacrifices she made. And I was, I think she was like, yo, show me what my sacrifices got. That's right. <laughs> I think, that's, I right. think that's what she didn't say. <laughs> when she was like, I'm going to travel, you mm-hmm. know, and actually that, those are the last couple of years of her life, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. traveled all the way to see exactly what I was doing. And, um, I can't tell you the immense amount of pride she walked away with in knowing uh, what I was doing, where I was. She didn't quite know what Harvard was, but she knew it was something really, really, really good. Sure, yeah. Uh, and that's all yeah. that matters. Yeah. That's so thank matters. you for le- letting me share that. It's, that's it's right. one of my favorite stories ever. That's right. So as is customary with our podcast, we always ask our, I don't, what the heck do you call them, interviewees? I don't know. We always ask them, you know, the folks that we interview, uh, you know, some questions about the head, heart, soul, and body. In terms of your head, 
from the head. What's an article or report that you have read recently about race, equity, and leadership that resonated with you? So a classic is Subtractive Schooling by Angela Valenzuela. Mm. Not only do we not read enough Latin, Latinx authors within our education sector, uh, but I mean, it, it's important, I think, to understand and to really you know, look back and to understand what the context was in places like Houston, Texas at the time, for example, which is what she writes about within subtractive schooling. And mm -hmm. I teach at NYU uh, uh, every semester of master's and doctoral students. And this is one of our key pieces of literature because it really helps to lay the foundation for what it means to subtract identity mm -hmm. from our youth, from our children in the schooling process. Yeah. So I would say, check that out. It is a classic. Uh, and um, you know, we talk about deficit-based schooling today, but nothing new, folks, nothing new. That's right. Lots of good thinking around this topic already and different names perhaps, but, but definitely critical for us to, to, to keep thinking about and talking about and, and looking back, not only, you know, books from 2019, but let's look back to, um, to a variety of classics that helped shape this thinking uh, initially. From the heart, tell us a story about how an experience of race and equity as a learner made you feel. And tell us about the impact that had on your education. I hate to bring you back to 1992. Okay. But you know, I'm an OG, Jim. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Eighth grade, Ocala Middle School, East San Jose, California. Mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Lovelace, eighth grade was the first year that I really started thinking that I was capable of, of, of much more than what was expected of me uh -huh. in that setting. And Mr. Lovelace was my eighth grade teacher. And, you know, he was on me. He was at my house eating enchiladas with my mother. He was <laughs> constantly engaged with my siblings. Like he knew all of the things that would make me um, really connect with him on, on deeper levels. And one thing he did was encourage me to submit a, um, an essay about what college meant to me to a state competition in California. And so um, I didn't want to do it. And my sister, my older sister encouraged me. She helped me. I ended up submitting it. Now I didn't win the competition. Um, I got second place. And later, fast forward many years from that moment, Mr. Lovelace would become a college professor. And he would bring my essay into that space to talk about the reviewers and how people would look at different essays and different student work mm -hmm. from the eyes of a more dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And he would say, I want you to look at who won. And the, the, the formality with which it was written around what college means and you know, careers and, you know, a very dominant based narrative. And I want you to look at this essay, which was mine, mm -hmm. um, which really talked about not wanting to perpetuate a lot of the dysfunction I saw at home uh, within my family, within the community, with gang violence, with drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that was my lens, which is sounds like, yo, I, I, I want to do something different mm -hmm. than what I'm experiencing today. And that was the reason why I wanted to go to college versus all the cookie cutter answers. Yeah. And so Mr. Lovelace ended up, I had no idea he used to use this in his class, uh, but he would end up, you know, he, he saved my essay. He would share it with me when I became a teacher on day one. He would send me flowers, said, congratulations, maestra, and he would send me that essay. Oh, wow. And I can't even tell how powerful this was. I never, I used to always feel like a loser mm -hmm. and like I couldn't write. And what he taught me was that uh, we all bring a different lens into our writing experience and into the work we do. And that yeah. sometimes because we all abide to a dominant culture, mm -hmm. my, my experience wasn't able to be seen in that moment, but it didn't mean I couldn't shift that for others in the future. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's something that comes to mind. Yeah. 
how powerful is that, you know, to, to be able to, I mean, that's why we get into education. If we can have that effect right. on one student, right? You know, oh, if please, we can see, that, we can see that potential in one student. And then, and now look, I mean, is Mr. Lovelace still with us? He is. I'm he is. We just had, he and I just had a breakfast about a month ago. How cool is that? Yeah. So not only does he get to yeah. see, but he gets to, you know, he gets to watch your journey along the way. That's, that's an amazing story. Yeah, he's dope. But, but that's why I believe in leadership, though, because can you multiply Mr. Right. Lovelace across an entire school? That's the leader. That's right. That's right. You have that exponential impact across uh, right. the system. All right, let's shift over to the soul. Tell us, the a little soul. Bit, tell us a little story about how your beliefs regarding race and equity have impacted your career as an educator. I know we've talked, we've woven that through this whole conversation. More recently, I've been thinking a lot about the leave to succeed mindset that I mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, my, my, my buddy, my friend, my colleague, Roberto Padilla, who is a superintendent mm -hmm. of Newburgh schools, mm -hmm. he would, um, you know, he would, he would attend schools in Newburgh, which was at one point rated like the murder capital of New York state. And oh, wow. uh, he would, he would attend schools and then he would return as a superintendent five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I wrote up with him and saw him announced and, and the beauty of that is, was, was one of the most inspirational moments I'd experienced as an educator. Similarly, I gave my career to my home community for the majority of the time I've been in education. And I can't, I, I can tell you that what drives me all the time is to really like disrupt that idea, right? That you have to get out, you have to leave to succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's, that you are an exception to the rule somehow. I am no exception. Mm -hmm. I have friends today um, who, you know, I've grown up with since kindergarten, first grade, these are my girls, but they are smarter than I could ever be. Mm -hmm. And in our 40s, they are finally going back to school. And that is not on them. That is on our school system. Mm -hmm. You know, and so anyway, I, I just I just think often about how not only do we um, do we do we judge and have biases around the communities of color and low communities, students begin believing exactly mm -hmm. the beliefs we hold within those spaces. OK. Right. That the adult educators are, uh, you know, sometimes come into to communities with a certain mm -hmm. belief about who the community is, what the community is capable of, mm -hmm. and students will internalize those beliefs, right. deficit-based beliefs. And, mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, if I do one thing in life, it's to disrupt that, that ideology, that, that, you know, that, that myth mm -hmm. that for some reason, like, you know, there are only a few exceptions to the rule. No, right. that's, that's, that's not true. Yeah. Let's change the rule. Let's move to the body. As you call educators to act, what should they do? I think it's easy to get stuck and perpetuate the exact things we hope to change. Mm -hmm. It's called isomorphism, a fancy word, but I think that uh, we all have great intentions and our impact uh, may not necessarily align with those intentions. Uh, but I think, I think one of the reasons for that and something I'm working on personally is trying to surround myself with people who don't necessarily think the way I think. Mm. And that that's something that is actually really hard for me being from the Bay Area and living in New York City. And, you know, I live within certain bubbles and, and I like my bubbles and I enjoy them and <laughs> I have fun uh, in those bubbles. Um, and you do need affinity spaces. And I understand the need for that. And, you know, even for my my personal and mental and spiritual health, I need my affinity spaces. Mm -hmm. But you also need bridging spaces. You know, where are the spaces where we're bridging across difference, you know, across ideology? Uh, we don't do enough of that. So I would say that's a challenge I would give to not only myself, but to everyone to really think about, 
you know, where are you engaging in those bridging spaces? I'm going to take that. I'm going to steal that, by the way. That's it. You need to engage in affinity and bridging spaces. Yes, I wrote that down as a quotable. I got, I have a, a page full of quotables, by the way. Whole bunch of them. Ah, very nice. Very okay. nice. And I have to say that a lot of that was also my thinking from that was a lot from the Pahara Aspen Fellowship I did, where they okay. do honor both the bridging and affinity spaces within yeah. within their program. And sure thing. It really stretched me. It really stretched me, which was great. So Nancy, as is my custom, this will be the last question. And, and I asked this, believe it or not, I actually asked this in a lot of places. I've asked it in, um, you know, in formal interviews when I'm actually up for a job. And I always, I always reserve this one and I can't take credit for it. This actually came from a very holy book. Our listeners, I'm not saying that you need to subscribe to one religion or another. I'm just saying this came from a very, very holy book that I happen to personally like to read. What does love require of you? So when you think about your work and you think about you know, just the, the magnitude of what's necessary in the education world. What does love require of Nancy in the time that we have here on this earth? Deep question. <sighs> <laughs> a good one. A good one. It usually stumps my interviewers. That's the, that's the cool thing. Mm, I'm stumped. <laughs> I'm definitely stumped. <sighs> you know, I, it, it brings me to... Um, you know, I think I'm thinking about this this idea of of giving ourselves the personal and professional gift of renewal, right? And uh, of of making sure that we are constantly pouring into ourselves um, so that we can pour into others. Because when we when our when our cups are empty, right? When we're on it, my sister always tells me this. She's like, you know, if I if I get if I hit a wall and I'm like sister, I'm struggling, <laughs> you know, she'll say, um, is, is your cup full right now? Do you have enough to give? Like, and when it's not, you have to make sure that's balanced because otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, in other words, are you loving yourself? Are you, are you loving yourself the way you're loving the work? Are you loving yourself the way you're loving the field? Mm-hmm. You know, are you loving yourself the way you are loving the mission and vision, what's possible? Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's, that's what it requires of me. Um, and it also makes me think of Lisa Delphitz, other people's children, you know, are we, are we thinking about our, our work and our youth as somebody else's kid? Mm-hmm. Or are we thinking about our work and our youth as if they were our own mm-hmm. and what we would want for our own children, uh, you know, for people we deeply, deeply, deeply love yeah. um, within the education spaces we are creating. And so um, I think that's what it requires of me to, to really embrace love as a, you know, a key part of, of the work, even though I get nervous saying the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's it's important. We certainly want to thank you, Nancy, for spending time with us today on the pedagogy of the obsessed. This has been a a, a wonderful conversation. Uh, hopefully, it gives our listeners a glimpse into you know the life of the CEO of the uh, New York City Leadership Academy. And how can they find you? How can they you know for those that for those of our listeners that want to engage with you? You know, what's the best way for them to to stay in touch with you and to follow your journey. You know what, you can follow, I'm, I'm on Twitter, if that's helpful, uh, mm-hmm. at Nancy B. Gutierrez. Um, um, also, uh, you know, our website, I think we have a pretty sly website, if I do say so myself, uh, and that's www.nycleadershipacademy.org. Uh, and we would love to be in touch. We pose the problems of human beings in their relations with the world. Knowledge emerges only through invention and reinvention, through the restless and patient continuing, hopeful inquiry human beings pursue in the world, with the world, and with each other. The 
solution is not to integrate them into the structure of oppression, but to transform that structure so that they become beings for themselves. Liberation is a practice of action and reflection on the world.